Recently, there's been some signs that people have begun to trust the response from the institutions, the central banks, the uh, governments, is that they are beginning to trust that that will have some traction. Uh, and markets have begun to, to separate out, begin to differentiate winners from losers. And, and we think that's, a, that's stage one in a process whereby maybe we're beginning to, to have a chance to look through this. Well, hello and a very warm welcome to everyone. This is the third live webcast from Investec Wealth and Investment. We're going to focus on policy decisions, the power makers, the global leaders who've been thrown into the midst of it all, whether that's injecting liquidity into the markets, shutting down schools, restricting travel. It is quite the challenge. Of course, these are times when leaders can shine through effective, intelligent decision making. And in doing so, they are central to the mood in our various countries and importantly for us they are important to the sentiment of the markets too at the moment one third of the global population is in lockdown maybe some of you have been sat at home this past week wondering whether the leaders are doing it right what comes next this unprecedented amount of cash that's being pumped into the global economy working and what happens at the other side of this crisis uh, john haynes head of research at investec wealth and investment uk and chair of the Global Investment Strategy Group. And also there in South Africa, Chris Holdsworth, who is Chief Investment Strategist, uh, Investec Wealth and Investment South Africa. He is also a member of the Global Investment Strategy Group. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. John, let me start with you, because I understand this morning the Investec Global Investment Strategy Group has been meeting. Chris has been on that call as well. Why don't you tell us what you've been discussing and what has come out of it? It uh, won't be a surprise. We've been discussing the topic that everybody's been discussing for the last uh, couple of months, um, and which is now clearly at a point of dominating all of our lives, and how we deal with it from an investment perspective. And uh, essentially, we've, we have debated the issues and tried to decide whether or not this is a, this is a building, evolving crisis, and financial markets are, li are likely to uh, go from weakness to weakness rather than strength to strength, or whether uh, the majority of the, of the angst about the crisis is possibly in markets. And it's time to try and, and ask ourselves to look through that. However, difficult it may be, and, and however immediate and uh, apparent the, the human crisis is, we certainly are in a very strange world where, where you have an investment debate and some of your colleagues in the debate on the phone have the virus, and that's the bottom line. We, I think, agreed with remarkable uniformity. There was a good deal, the first part of the crisis in financial markets is behind us in the sense that we have seen a cascade of negative behavior in financial markets has been driven by exchange-traded funds and de-risking from volatility-driven uh, traders that has meant uniformly assets have been repriced in a negative sense. But recently, there's been some signs that, that people have begun to trust the response from the institutions, the central banks, the uh, governments, is that they are beginning to trust that that will have some traction. And markets have begun to, to separate out, begin to differentiate winners from losers. And, and we think that's, a, that's stage one in a process whereby maybe we're beginning to, to, to have a chance to look through this. The first of the green shoots that we've been looking for suggests that maybe we should start, start looking for opportunities rather than looking for risks at the same time as the whole of the market is looking for risks. So you're looking at possible opportunities that might be there, but as you rightly point out, we're, maybe we're not even in the teeth of this crisis, that it has to get worse before it gets better. In that context, are you happy with the sort of investment and liquidity that is being put into the market? I think we uniformly agree. There are, there are two assumptions you need to make. 
well, more than two, but the two critical assumptions you need to make in order to stay with the program, uh, you know, hold on to your portfolios of risk assets through this particular period. And, and that is that the institutional response is going to be sufficient. So do you trust the plumbing of the system? Do you trust the financial system to hold together? And, and we uh, uniformly, every member of the committee agreed that, yes, we did. We thought the playbook that had been put in place in the, in the great financial crisis has created some tools uh, that are actually uniquely suitable to this event. One's seen the Federal Reserve deploy unimaginable amounts of liquidity almost immediately into financial markets to stabilize the treasury bond markets, the short-term cash markets. And, and every time they get challenged, they just dream up another trillion dollars to stick into the market and do it. And I think finally they've broken the back of the resistance of those people who initially turn up to a crisis like this and say, well, this is so big, we're going to break the plumbing. I think we're past that. We, we, we really are seem to seem to be, we have demonstrated we can do that. But the next part is okay. The plumbing is okay, but that doesn't mean as we move into this inevitable downdraft of, of economic activity that we are voluntarily imposing upon ourselves in order to protect, protect the most vulnerable in our society. It's a laudable human trait and that one of a, a great, a glorious thing to see, but it is costly. As we're doing this, that the, the remediative effect, the fiscal stimulus that we're putting in place is a credible response to keeping people employed through the crisis so that when things actually look better, they have a job and we can resume the level of demand or close to it that we were experiencing before the crisis. We will have some damage, but, but we are limiting the damage by these incredible fiscal programs that we're putting in place. We're seeing something just unprecedented. We're seeing the revenue collection mechanism of, of our entire society turning into an income distribution mechanism. That's just, just bizarre. It's magnificent. And it is going to get money straight into the pockets of the people who are most impacted by the measures that we are choosing to take in order to protect our most vulnerable in society. I'm not going to bet against the world's central banks, the world's governments, and our healthcare system, but the best and brightest of our technological people to come up with something that will enable us to actually manage the crisis uh, as we move through the year. So together we came to a consensus that we really have to try and, even as the news is becoming incrementally worse, day by day, it's going to be horrible to, to watch the television for the next three weeks. We're going to see America go through a, a nasty, nasty period, and that's going to be very stressful. But as that happens, we got to try and look beyond it because ultimately humanity will succeed and the measures that we are taking to help them do so will enable us to come out of the other side and, and actually in the end we'll probably pat ourselves on the back. Well that is reassuring to hear. Let me bring you in Chris over there in South Africa. I mean President Ramaphosa has just announced a 21-day lockdown so presumably you're getting used to your first day at home locked in. What do you see as the future for South Africa? Where is the curve at the moment and, and what might it mean economically? Yeah, thanks, Christian. Um, yeah, the lockdown uh, kicks in from midnight tonight. So as of tomorrow for 21 days, everybody's going to be sitting at home and not allowed to go out. And it makes it incredibly difficult for people in the country to both work and consume. And as a result, there will, of course, be knock-on consequence for growth. There, there has to be. But first of all, it is important to recognize that we are following in the footsteps of other countries that have thus far shown some success in containing the virus. So the idea is that you lock down everybody for a period, whether it be 14 days or 21 days. We've seen various regions and countries implement lockdowns over those periods. And subsequent to that, you, you'll start to see the number of new infections start to decline. So if we look at Wuhan and if we look at Italy, when they imposed a lockdown 14 days later, they saw a reduction in the number of new infections. 
which makes sense given the, the period that it takes for the virus to become evident. And so you lock down 14 days later, you start to get a reduction. That isn't the only measure of success, though. The point behind the lockdown isn't just to flatten the curve. It's to allow space to build capacity in your healthcare system and to build capacity for testing and tracing such that when the lockdown is removed and people are out and they're spreading and mingling, when there are little outbreaks, you're able to quickly monitor where they are, trace, get everybody incubated that needs to be isolated, put aside. So there's two measures of success that we need to look at. First of all, the curve should turn within two weeks. That would be the first measure. And we've got an extra week of lockdown just in case. And for two, during that period, we have to build capacity. If we don't do that, then it's pointless. Then we're going to have another lockdown later on. You talked about the hit that might come to the economy in terms of growth. John was talking about the money that had been pumped in, the liquidity by central banks. What sort of support are you seeing there in South Africa to, to help the economy? Yeah, we've, we've seen quite a bit. So first of all, just in terms of the knock to growth, um, we've seen estimates out there that suggest that Q1 growth is going to be minus 4%. Now bear in mind, South Africa is different from a number of other parts of the world. We're entering into this crisis while being in a recession already. And we're going to get Q1 growth of minus 4%. And there are estimates that Q2 growth could be as low as minus 14%, a number that's extraordinarily rare and extraordinarily painful. It does bounce subsequent to that, given the latest forecast, under the assumption that we can remove the lockdown. But this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt in a, a major fashion. What we've seen now coming out of the US for unemployment claims is a number that we've never seen before. Three million people out there claiming unemployment, close to 2% of the total workforce. We can expect trouble in South Africa too. So the government was forced to provide some form of support. And they've done so in two different ways. First of all, from the government themselves, there's a fiscal effort. They've announced that they would be setting aside of 30 billion rand from the UIF to be able to provide support that would become for, for people that would become unemployed and lose income. And there are a few other measures to support small businesses as well. That's 30 billion rand. And there, as I say, there are a few other measures as well. There's also support from the central bank. We cut rates before uh, last week, and now we've announced QE. And, and these things are linked. Because the UIF has a NAV of around about 150 billion rand. So there's a lot of ammo for the government to spend. The problem is that the assets of the UIF sit largely in government bonds. So if it was the case that they were to use the money in the UIF, they have to liquidate, in this case, 30 billion rand over a period. So you're selling 30 billion rand of government bonds into an environment where not a lot of people are buying South African government bonds. Add to that the prospect of a downgrade. Moody's will come out tomorrow evening. We may have had an extra 100 billion rand of forced sellers from people or investors who follow the Wigby. So combined, we could have had 130 billion selling into a vacuum. The central bank therefore responded. And they do typically when there's dysfunction in markets, when there's insufficient liquidity. So they provided some liquidity and immediately we saw our yields drop by 200 basis points across the yield curve. So their actions worked. So the first action we've seen is already providing liquidity from the central bank. And we can see the evidence of that already. The second is fiscal support from the state. We'll only see that over the coming month. Even with that support, we know it's going to be tough because we don't have the fiscal space to provide the sort of support that you're seeing in Europe and in the US. We're going to do a smaller measure. And as a result, it is going to hurt. The next month will hurt a lot. Who decides, John, when uh, the time is right to go back to business and to withdraw that state aid? It's a high-class question to ask because uh, if you're taking it out, you don't need it anymore. You're past the issue. So for now, we're grateful for it in whatever form it comes. We'd rather be, there be too much than too little. Um, but in the end, markets will, will decide. So at the moment, we put in large chunks of fiscal spending. As I said, we've reversed the revenue collection system and made an income distribution system. It's quite amazing. And uh, at some point, you know, they have to get the money from somewhere. 
and uh, they can either borrow it in markets. And if you borrow it in markets, you know, you're charged a very low amount to borrow for long periods of time. So why not borrow it from investors who have spare cash? That's good. If the investors have spare cash, don't want to give it to you. You can go to your treasury, your central bank, and they can just run the printing machine and they can give it to you. And the only discipline at that stage, uh, and that's that, that's where you get to where markets discipline comes in. Then the discipline is, is currency markets who then say, okay, I've suddenly got all this money sloshing around and I'm afraid now I'm not going to take sterling as my means of payment anymore because you're just running a printing press over here and, and so sterling goes before you get inflation. That's where market discipline comes in. So who decides when this comes out of the system? Markets will decide when it comes out of the system uh, and democracies will decide how they want to deal with markets and the speed at which they want to respond to markets. And, and that's a social governance question that people like Philip will be uh, far better capable of than me at, at deciding how the politicians will decide to play that, that particular hand of cards. Uh, Chris, let me pick up a bit of that, though. Um, markets will decide, John said, but we've heard from Donald Trump uh, in the past few days that he wants to be back to business as normal by probably the end of Easter, even though the numbers of those, in fact, is rising at quite a rate. Um, what happens if he decides, right, that's it, that's the end of uh, the sort of liquidity that we're putting into the into the system, it's back to market forces. What happens then if Europe is following a different path? It's going to lead to some international tensions. And, and the, the backdrop to this, the, the reason for um, the desire for speed is that we can all withstand pain for a certain time period. But the difficulty is for companies with high fixed costs, say, for example, restaurants, you, you go a month without revenue and you go bust. You can survive a week without revenue, so maybe two weeks without revenue. And so there, there is a time period under which the companies go bust. And if you surpass that, if you go past that point, you land up doing long-term structural damage to the economy rather than short-term. So there's this careful balance as to how much liquidity you provide, but also to ensure that you get through the worst of it without there being too many defaults and without there being systemic issues for the banking system. So there is a need to get back to work at some point soon for the economy, but the counter to that is if you get back too soon, you allow people to get in amongst each other, the virus spreads again, and then you have to go under lockdown again. So there is a very careful balance to be established here. One can only hope that he's being advised by, by the best, and I'm sure he is, and that he will come to the right decision. But it's not a simple decision, because a weak, a weak economy will ultimately lead to people dying as well, and not to the same way, and not in the same fashion. And we mustn't um, say that we, we just need to get back to work for, um, for the economy's sake. But the reality is, at some point, if we were to have zero activity for a year, it would be disastrous too. And, and just to emphasize that point, there are a number of restaurants in New York at the moment whose activity is down 100% year on year. That's simply not sustainable for even longer than a very short period. So at some point, they're going to have to make a very callous, calculated decision to try to encourage the economy to persist or deal with an unemployment rate of 30% or higher um, without support, which is why they're providing support now, but it also means you've got to do something at some point. Now, if you've got countries acting at, at different time periods, which I think is the point that you're hinting at, so the U.S. gets back before Europe, that inevitably is going to lead to tension. Because if you're a country that's trying to quell this and another country spreading, you face risk from the other country coming, visitors from the other country coming forward. So you, you block visas, you don't allow travel, you don't allow trade, because you're trying to protect your populace from a country that's got a lot. And that itself leads to reciprocal sanctions and the like. So it, it is going to be tricky from a political perspective, 
And the key to watch ultimately is the number of new infections per day. And it's only once that really starts to roll over across the world that we can actually start to relax. It's interesting that, isn't it, John? Um, I mean, you might see a, a more Darwinian approach in the United States to the one we're going to see here in Europe. It's clearly financial markets really got started to get very scared when they saw America dealing with it because they know America can be much more ruthless and, and quick clearing markets and that has to be more brutal. The numbers, uh, you can, you can um, uh, if you look up the current economist projections for the second quarter in GDP in the US, it's, it's you know, down 25%. What a, what a you know, quarter of the US is, is furloughed. That is just a number that you couldn't have dreamed of. It's, it's far worse in a short period of time than, than the great financial crisis. So getting your head around that is very hard. You also have to have to again realize just the magnitude of the of the stimulus and support we have put in place. It, it is it again far larger than the financial crisis and it's fiscal. So it's not just monetary, it's fiscal. It's directly where it needs to be. As Chris says, it can't go on forever. Donald Trump is, you know, uh, hard to digest at some in some times. You know, he's right in the sense that that you can't shut America down for six months. That can't be done. You have to figure out a way through this. And the question is, is there a way that we can get through this that, that balances the need, the human need to control the virus and also enables the economy to function underneath it? And, and there is, there is a path through. And, and again, I come back to medical science. It sounds as though, you know, this is pie in the sky, but we are so deeply entrenched in this issue that it's almost hard for us to, to remember what is brilliant about humanity, its, it's ability to, to find and adjust and adapt is phenomenal and should never be underestimated. In this case, we have the, the best minds across the planet focused on one problem, the largest amount of resources in the world focused on one problem. And, and you know, they're going to win. They're going to do it. It's only a question of when. So, so when, when you start thinking in those terms and you say, these guys are going to win. What do I own while I'm waiting for them to win? How do I invest my money while I'm waiting to win? Again, that becomes quite easy. You go out and you say, well, what am I still consuming? What, what am I doing more of? Well, I'm doing more of this. All of those people are enabling me to network virtually. They're, 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 kind of, they're my friends. I like them. I'm still using them. I, you know, do I still like Marmite? Yes, I like Marmite. What is the kind of guys? So you don't, you don't think that a lot of our leaders have talked in terms of war analogies. And of course, it's different. We're, we're not seeing physical destruction, but we've seen real destruction to to brands to airlines to restaurant groups to hotel groups you're not worried about that you think they will come back i actually take the opposite view maybe i'm just just ordinary and contrarian by nature i actually think our trust in brands is going to go up there are going to be certain probably the ones that you already knew you trusted we're going to come through and they're going to be the large supermarkets who we spend lots of time on 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 media in normal times complaining when they put the prices up this time we're not going to complain these guys are going to come through, they're going to deliver our food, they're going to make sure it happens, they're going to order the, our access to, to, to necessities. Financial institutions have, have been, in the, been in the doghouse for years. They are part of the solution, not part of it. Big corporations, they're going to write big checks, they're going to take dividend cuts, they're going to balance the pain across the thing. Everybody is going to suffer, but we're all going to suffer together, and our politicians are going to earn our respect by the measures that, they, that they're doing. I'm very impressed by, by the grit that they are showing and, and the willingness to inflict pain to protect our vulnerable. I think our media is coming out of this really well. The, the, the chitter-chatter and endless drone of bad news is turning into real information and proportion. I think in so many ways our society is learning that there's a good core of strength in it. That when we come out the other side, I think that's going to stay with us. That's an enduring taste that we should uh, look forward to savouring.
Well, I'm glad the media is performing well. I'm going to take that to the bank, John. That is good news. We're talking about sectors, Chris. We should talk about mining and minerals in South Africa because that is what drives the economy to a large extent. I mean, what what is in the pipeline for those sort of industries, given that everybody's at home? The mines in South Africa have been put on cared maintenance with the exception of supplying coal to ESCOM. And it is significant for South Africa because ex- minerals account for roughly 60% of our exports. And we are now going to be exporting out of inventories. So we can't do this for very long. It's, it's a problem. Now, fortunately, we, we're not going to be importing a hangover lot at the same time. We are going to be consuming less. There's going to be less need for importing machinery and the like. Less need for importing oil. And oil, is, the price has gone down as it is, as you know. It's not quite the case that we can take, right, 60% off our exports and, and therefore there's a crisis because simultaneously we're taking some of our imports as well. But it is 8% of the economy too. It employs a lot of people. We need to get it back up and running at some point soon, just like with the rest of the economy. And that's why we really need to contain this virus as rapidly as we can. Because if it gets into the mines, presumably that's a sort of environment where it could spread very easily and we would have to shut down completely. So we're going to have to bear some pain to shut it down for some time. It does allow ESCOM some space to breathe. And hopefully they can do some maintenance to the extent that they can during this period as well um, to reduce the prospect of load shedding further on. So there might be a little bit of light in this if they can actually do that. It's not clear that they will be able to. But there's consequences that are greater than just those for South Africa. I'm sure it'll be a knock for our growth and there'll be a knock for revenue for the state. And we're going to have to export out of inventories. But simultaneously, we account for a very large portion of platinum group metal production globally. Now, as it is the case, automobile production has been in decline around the world. And there's little demand out there for buying vehicles at this point. But there still is some demand. We still are producing vehicles every day and they still are consuming platinum, palladium and rhodium. And we're not going to be producing it. So they're going to eat into their stockpiles. And the longer that this persists for us, the greater the pressure there will be on the price of those metals because we're not producing. And it may well lead up to a shortage for automobile producers, another disruption to global supply chains. So as I say, the consequences could be quite broad across the world. Chris makes a really good point, though, John, um, even if we didn't have this crisis. And I take <laughs> I take uh, everything that you said this morning, and it is it is encouraging what you hear. But even if we didn't have this crisis, we would still have the trade war between China and the United States. We would still have the price war over oil. Uh, and those are going to be there when the crisis has gone. I, I think you're right. I'm not Pollyannaish about my long term view of how difficult the geopolitical chessboard is going to look when we've come out of this. The, the China, it seems to me, consolidating its its status as a source of stability rather than instability in the world. And they want their share of influence in, in the future of the world. America uh, is retreating somewhat. Pax Americana in their protective umbrella with Europe, that is that is under enormous strain and, and will fragment. And, and when you get three blocks of power in a world that used to have one, that is not going to resolve itself in my lifetime. It is going to be a push and pull of influences that that will mean that the stability in growth that we saw uh, for a very long period until the financial crisis, we had this great stable GDP growth period um, where everything seemed to be wonderful led by America. Well, I think that's over. We've already seen it's over in the last in the last few years. This is a, a shock rather than intrinsic endogenous uh, issue that has caused this bound of instability. But I think going forward, we we have to accept that competing interests uh, will be fought on the economic stage as they have begun to be in the last few years. And that will keep investors on their toes. We need to be sure that what we invest in is an enduring asset than the leveraged opportunity. They're not going to be around very long consistently. It's a much different game in the investment world. Stick with the highest quality 
you possibly can stay at the at the highest uh, reliability end of your investment curve, but stick with the game because the world is still going to produce uh, positive returns over the long term. And that seemingly contradictory uh, message is, is a hard one to sustain in one's brain, but it, it is actually a recipe for long-term investment returns by good quality companies that make good returns that aren't leveraged, that reinvest in their own businesses and that grow. And I see no reason to abandon that strategy because of an exogenous event that we couldn't have predicted. We've had an incredible amount of questions. Uh, Chris, let me let me start with this one for you. Uh, South African citizens currently residing here in the UK. Someone asked, for those in my situation and others, obviously, what do we do to ensure the savings, retirement funds, unit trusts, etc., are protected during these turbulent times? This sort of a question is one that we are obsessed about. We've got various processes in place. Um, the GISG is one that you referred to earlier. We've got asset allocation needs to where we continue evaluating the environment as it stands and trying to estimate where we think things are likely to go and how we should best position our portfolios for a given time horizon, whatever that may be. And as a result, in this current time frame, we take into account two major factors. One is the disease and the spread of it and the associated lockdowns. How long is that going to persist? And for two, on the other side, the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've seen coming through. And the point at which the disease starts to seem to come under control is the point at which the stimulus is going to come through and we would think you're going to see the other side of the U, of the recovery. And at that point, what we saw in China was that the market rallied and we would think that you would see a similar sort of rally in other markets globally. So the question for us is a fine balance around timing to see at what point does the virus start to seem like we can sort of see where it's, it's going to be peaking. And at what point does the fiscal stimulus simply overwhelm whatever issues there are either? And it's that balance that we continue trying to work out to establish how much risk we should allocate. Should we be taking risk off? Should we be risk neutral? Or should we start to nibble and take a bit more risk? And if we do start to take a bit more risk, in what form? Should we take risk through equities? Should it be through investment-grade credit? There are a number of options. And it's through that process that we continue trying to refine portfolios such that over a medium-time horizon, perhaps even a long-time horizon, we can generate the best risk-adjusted return. So the answer is our process, and that's how best we can deal with it. In addition to that question, I mean, in terms of things like government bonds, so much money has gone out, the governments have spent so much money. What's the future for government bonds as far as you're concerned? That's, that's an interesting one, because at this current time point, there's little demand globally. So you can, in effect, print money, you can stimulate as much as you want, and there isn't going to be inflation. That's not always the case. And so once we come out of this, we need to be very careful that when we get to the other side, that we're not simply seeing a full monetization of debt with associated inflationary concerns, because that would see a spike in yields. In addition, what we're seeing at the moment is that governments globally have decided to spend. They have to, because of the issues associated with the virus. At the same time, a number of countries that were big savers before are in no position to save. If we think of OPEC countries, for instance, that would contribute massively to the sovereign wealth funds with oil where it is, they're having to dip in instead and having to borrow. It's a similar story with Russia. It's unlikely that they're going to be running a budget surplus at the moment, given where current prices are. So you've got these massive savers coming out of the market and governments simultaneously accessing debt, which they're able to do because of help from central banks. At some point, you would think once you reach a normal situation, that's either going to be sterilized and reversed or yields are going to be much higher than we've become accustomed to. What about the safer havens, John? Uh, someone asked, what are your oil 
metal price predictions for 2020, thinking in terms of gold? I quote my uh, mentor, Professor Cantor, and uh, say, now is not the time for false precision. At the best of times, I, I, I would be very reluctant to put any numbers on, on a prediction for anything at all, let alone gold commodities and foreign exchange. If what you're saying, if what the questioner really wants to ask is, is gold an insurance policy in these kind of a times? And I was brought up as a fundamental investor, uh, trained uh, by uh, people who, who at least, you know, knew how to train people, whether I learned enough of them is another question, but, but they tried to train me and, and they were good teachers. We used to never have anything to do with gold. We just said it's a barbarous relic for barbarous times. These are barbarous times. And uh, that's the truth of it. At some point, enough moving parts move at the same time and they're tectonic in nature they are huge moving parts that you know a large portion of the world's investment community will be confused at any given point in time if that's the case and what you can see is you're getting an enormous reliquification of the system much much more um uh, uh, borrowing by governments and then they run out of capacity like chris said south african government has effectively run out of capacity to borrow so it has to deal with this problem in different ways it can issue bonds but if it issue bonds then the foreign exchange market takes the pressure at some point that's the same thing for america even america has a capacity for printing money that will ultimately run out it isn't there yet we have lots more people who are afraid than the people who are greedy so there's an ample supply of people wanting to buy their government debt but at some point those people will go down and the supply of debt will go up and if it isn't inside america it will be fought between the foreign exchange markets as as, as to what happens so, so what does that mean that means suddenly we're going to have currency volatility pick up it's the stability that we've had between the dollar and the euro and sterling and the yuan. That, that's an artifact of a, of a different world. And at some point that pressures will, will build and people will go, well, oh my word, I just want to have cash. But I don't know whose cash to have. And that's what gold is. Gold is just nobody's cash. That's why you, you're seeing it move up a little bit. Is it a good insurance policy for barbarous times? Yes. But if you own it, you better hope it goes down because that'll mean everything else goes up. It's a very peculiar asset. Um, only for people who understand it, don't trade gold. You're going to get your head handed to you. If you know what it's for, which is an insurance policy for tail risk events, fine. Just buy some, put it in your portfolio, forget about it. Okay, good advice. We're almost out of time, gentlemen. I've enjoyed listening to you both. Uh, and there's some really good advice that you've both imparted. Do, do you want to, Chris, leave us with a closing thought, what your feelings are at the moment? The one thought that strikes me is that it is an opportunity for South Africa to demonstrate some form of unity. We're all struggling through this together to, across classes. Um, everyone is going to be locked up at home, struggling uh, simultaneously. And I mean, society has been fairly fractured over the last little while. Hopefully this provides uh, an opportunity and that there is some good that, that will come out of this. It's an important point that, isn't it, John, just to come to you for a, a close, closing thought. I mean, you talked today about institutions and our systems, which are robust and how suddenly we're here in the UK, post-Brexit, we're all suddenly turning back to the experts. And hopefully, I, I, you know, I don't uh, put people off trying to do that. But it's, I do think we, we are at a, at a moment where society has a chance to think about it's what it wants from a perspective that it only gets a chance, thank God, once in, in a while. And I think we'll come up with some new, new ways of, of evolving our, our lives that will be good for, for everybody. So I don't want to be Pollyannaish about this. We know the next month or so is going to be horrible, but we need to focus on on the long term in order to understand what our lives are really going to be like. We're not going to have the virus forever. What we are going to have forever 
is humanity and a society that is going to drive itself forward and create good. A good message to leave us with. Uh, John, Chris, enjoyed your company. Thank you very much for being with us and giving us some insight and some clarity into what we're dealing with at the moment. Uh, and we will be having another webcast next week, next Thursday at the same time, uh, which you will be notified of on email. But from me, Christian Fraser, from John and from Chris, thanks very much for watching. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorised financial services provider and member of the JSC.